Now come in First Kings to kind of a shift where we start to move into this section where we begin to have some of the ministry of Elijah the prophet and certainly one of the more dynamic prophets we have in the Old Testament Elijah is and we now sort of get introduced to him in the beginning of his ministry so some really exciting chapters uh, in the weeks ahead we'll be looking at together. Uh, if you remember sort of as the backdrop of where Elijah now comes just sort of bursting onto the scene, the northern kingdom of Israel we saw in the end of chapter 16 at this point is really going through a time of great uh, wickedness morally and spiritually. Uh, they are in a tremendous decline, turning away from the Lord. In fact, if you look just back at the end of chapter 16, certainly there's been a cumulative effect, but this was sort of the crowning piece that has brought them to the low place morally and spiritually where they are at this point. First Kings 16, it tells us there in verse 29 that it was in the 38th year of Asa, who was the king of Judah in the south, that Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab reigned there in Samaria at the capital for about 22 years. And then we get this regarding Ahab. We know this wicked king in the northern kingdom. Verse 30 says, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, their king, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And then it came to pass as though that had been a trivial thing. In other words, if that were not enough, the Bible's saying that he did more evil than all the other men and kings who were before him. If that were just a trivial thing, then the next horrific downward slope was that he then took as a wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal. And worshipped him. And then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And then Ahab, verse 33, made a wooden image. That's the worship of the Asherah, the goddess of fertility and sexuality and those kind of things. And Ahab, verse 33, notice the Bible tells us Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So uh, Ahab, no doubt the up to this point most wicked king that has ever existed in the history of the nation of Israel through himself and his wife Jezebel, this wicked couple, they now come to power nationally and they introduce all types of forms of idolatry of pagan worship practices, building temples uh, to Baal, uh, setting up wooden images of the Asherah, which again was the goddess of fertility, and, and just introducing into the nation all types of immoral practices, encouraging people in idolatry, leading the people away from God, and as it says very clearly there, doing more to provoke God to anger than all the other kings and leaders that had been there before him. Now, it's in the midst of that backdrop of the nation in tremendous moral decline, rebelling against God, dishonoring the Lord, doing things that are wicked, not only spiritually, but morally in their practices, that we notice now as we come to chapter 17 that God's answer to that, to try and bring not only the king and the national leaders, but also the people in general of the nation, God's answer to try and bring the people to repentance is to send a man with a word from the Lord to speak into the lives of the people in hope that it would awaken them from their rebellion. It's interesting. God doesn't raise up a whole movement. God doesn't you know, come up with a, a whole new structure for government or some new plan or policy. None of these things were of any interest. God raises up one man who is in tune with the Spirit of God, someone who had a word from the Lord and with a prophetic voice sends them out. And again, just reminds us of even what the New Testament says, that how, how God uses the foolishness of preaching. And that's exactly what Elijah does now. He comes, not so much a preacher, but just a prophet of the Lord. He comes and he makes a proclamation uh, and God is going to use circumstantial and economic struggle combined with a word from the Lord in connection to that to try and get the attention of the people, to awaken them out of their wickedness and their rebellion and their turning against God at this time. So chapter 17, verse 1, this is how Elijah now kind of just bursts on the scene. We have very little of his background. 
We know hardly anything of what his prior experiences have been, of his pedigree. And all of a sudden, now just like a flash of light in the midst of this horribly dark time of the nation, Elijah the prophet just kind of bursts onto the scene here in chapter 17. It says, And Elijah the Tishbite, of the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, all that informs us is that he is from the eastern side of the Jordan River on the side where Gilead would be there. So uh, he comes from that area, maybe from a city named Tishbe. Some believe that's possible, but Gilead sort of gives us the best reference that he's of the inhabitants of Gilead. He now comes into no doubt, perhaps the palace where the king is at, and he speaks a word to Ahab. And here's his really one-word sermon. He says, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, again, we don't want to miss the backdrop and the scene of what's really going on there. Again, we, we have to think of this from the perspective of, you know, let's say, for example, in our own nation, you know, the White House, and think of the security measures that are involved to try and have access to President Trump. If you would want to go in and, and share what you feel like was a word from God with President Trump in regards to perhaps something that may even be a rebuke or kind of to challenge him in regards to his policies or the moral decisions he was making or, you know, again, any American president, we realize the security detail and the ability to restrain people from having access to our highest national leader in our land is absolutely just tremendous. And you have to understand, any king of any nation, it's going to be the same type of dynamic. And then add into that, this king is a wicked, ungodly man. You have to imagine anybody that would come in and cross him and say anything to challenge him, you're talking off with your head very quickly. And so we have to realize that when we, we see here, it doesn't seem that Ahab had any connection to Elijah before this knew who Elijah was. It doesn't seem that Elijah was invited into the palace of the king to give his input in regards to how things were going in the nation or to say any of these things. Somehow, by nothing other than, I believe, just an open-door divine favor, Elijah just boldly goes in to the presence of the king there publicly before his other servants that are around him and basically says, look, I have a word that I like to share with you. I won't be long. And he just utters this very direct, very powerful prophecy and says to him, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. In other words, I don't stand before you. I don't give account to you. I give account to the true king who's on the throne, the living God, the Lord God of Israel, before whom I stand and whom I answer to. That's the king I'm responsible to. He says, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. So he announces to the king, listen, in regards to the weather forecasts for the next three, three and a half years, unless I say it's going to rain, the rains are shut off. It's not going to rain anymore. And you have to envision as this takes place, no doubt King Ahab and his servants have got to be thinking probably to some degree. And, and the Bible seems to indicate to us as well that Elijah does kind of look a little bit, him and John the Baptist, they kind of had like a Captain Caveman look. You remember Captain Caveman back in, you know, just kind of the leather, you know, uh, belt around his waist and the camel's hair outfit and the long hair and probably a long beard. And I mean, just kind of like an ancient wild looking hippie. And he goes walking in totally unrefined and he just pronounces this, you know, very strong prophetic word, a word of judgment that there's going to be no more rain on the land. And we have to realize, too, with the nation of Israel and those who lived in those cultures, it was an agrarian society. They were very dependent upon the early and the latter rains, that which came in October, November, and then again in like the March and April time frame. They were utterly dependent upon those rains in season for their crops to produce and really for their economy to function. If the rain ceased, that was like economic collapse, we have to understand. So uh, it's not just like, well, it's going to be really hot and dry and you're going to get sunburned. I mean, that's not the idea. I and mean, this is a severe thing he's saying. The rains are shutting down. It would be like saying, look, the economy is going to crash. For the next few years, everything's going to seize up 
and people are going to struggle with drought and famine and all those kind of things. Now, again, to have the boldness to go into the presence not only of a king, but into the presence of a wicked king like this and speak so directly and so boldly to confront what he's doing because of the ungodliness and announce this really as a judgment of God, it should cause us to ask, where in the world does that kind of boldness come from? I mean, that is quite a risky move that Elijah just did there. Where does that kind of boldness come from? And let me just say, it comes from a few things. First of all, the first thing you could say is it comes from his personal relationship with God and the time that he had spent with God in private. Here Elijah comes on the scene. You can call it a one-sentence sermon. You can call it a one-sentence prophecy. I think both fit very well. But the boldness to come and to say such a thing and to proclaim such a thing to the, to the risk of your own personal welfare, where does that kind of boldness come from? Well, it comes from what Elijah is saying right there, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. See, before Elijah went and stood before King Ahab, this intimidating, powerful man, he had been standing in the presence of the Lord. And he had been in the presence of the Lord and he knew, you know what, apart from what you may believe, King, and apart from what everybody in this nation may believe, that Baal is God or that Ashtoreth is God, what I know is God's not dead. God is alive and he's on the throne. And I've been in his presence. I've been standing in his presence. And I know that he's given me a word from him to come and deliver and no doubt Elijah had been spending time alone with the living God and it is from that that he had a sense of accountability to answer to the Lord that he had no fear of man he had the fear of the true king which was God himself and his his public boldness and his public influence was a direct connection to his private intimacy with the Lord and when you see someone who has able to have public influence and is able to publicly minister with effectiveness for the Lord, let me tell you where that comes from. That comes from that they have spent time standing, sitting, being in the presence of the Lord privately and coming from the presence of the Lord. They come with a dynamic of heaven to be able to speak and say and do the things they do in the presence of men because they've already been in the presence of the Lord. Another reason why you see Elijah doing this and having such boldness, it's also directly connected to the fact that he had been praying and considering God's word. You can almost say that means he's probably having a pretty good devotional life. And let me explain what I mean by that when I say he's been praying and considering God's word. Two scriptures particularly. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, one specific place in the Old Testament. If you remember, in the law, when God was speaking to his people, the nation of Israel, and at times he would say, if you obey me, then I will bless you and cause the land to be fruitful and send rain. God would also say, in regards to bringing a curse upon himself, if you disobey me and you turn away from me and you don't follow my word and my precepts or you turn to other gods, then you will bring curses upon yourself. Let me read to you what Deuteronomy 11 specifically says. God said to the people, take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Exactly what Israel was doing at this point in time. God went on to warn, lest, if you do that, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain and the land yield no produce. So Elijah was acquainted with what the word of God said. And Elijah, because he knew the word, knew what the will of God was. And he knew what the word of God said and what God's desires and God's plans and purposes included. And he knew that when God's people turned away from him, one of the consequences of that sin and rebellion, God said would be in his word that he would shut up the heavens like brass and he would withhold the rain from coming upon the land. And therefore, at the same time, there would be no rain and the land would not yield its proper produce for them. So Elijah, knowing the word of God, is able to have insight and clarity as he looked at the situation of the nation, as he evaluated what was going on, he was able to interpret what was happening in, in relation to what the word of God said. And so it allowed him to forecast and allowed him to understand, listen, if this is what we're doing as a nation, 
God's going to bring consequence. God's going to withhold the reins from us. So he has that sense of confidence because he knows what the word of God says and what God's will and way would be. And then secondly, James chapter 5 tells us this about Elijah. James in the New Testament gives us this commentary. He said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And then James tells us afterwards that, and we'll see in chapter 18, then Elijah prayed again, and then the heaven gave rain. So when when Elijah comes into the presence of King Ahab and says, listen, king, as the Lord God of Israel lives, there's not going to be dew or rain for the next three years except at my word. What Elijah is simply doing is announcing what he has heard as a word from the Lord as the result of spending time being acquainted with God's word and spending time, no doubt, in prayer and intercession before God privately and and no doubt working through this reality of, Lord, what are we doing as a nation? And Lord, what we're doing is dishonoring you. And Lord, you say in your word that if we were to do these things that we are doing that displease and dishonor you, Lord, you say in your word that you would withhold the reins that you would bring consequence to awaken the people, that you would allow judgment to fall upon us because we would be angering you. And and so, Lord, I'm asking if that's what it takes. Lord, if that's what it takes to awaken our nation, if that's what it takes to bring repentance and people to turn from sin and idolatry and wake up spiritually, then, Lord, honor your word. Lord, fulfill your word. It's your word, Lord. Bring it to pass. Bring to pass what your word says. And as he's praying earnestly through this, Lord, if that's what it takes, then shut up the heavens, stop the rain. And God, in response to Elijah's prayer, says, Elijah, that's what I'm going to do. I've heard your prayer, Elijah. And now you go and you go announce that to the king of Israel directly. You go and tell him until you pray again as you and I have fellowship, that there will not be rain on the land unless you pray and ask for rain to return. And I will honor my word. And there's this beautiful picture here of a servant of the Lord who realizes the value of God's word and that God keeps his word and realizes the value of praying in accordance with what the word of God says because those are prayers in accordance with God's will. And really, the reason the rain shut off was an answer to the prayer of God's servant. Again, how interesting that James would say that he prayed earnestly and God answered his prayer and did something on a national level. So if we think, oh, my prayers are so weak, they can't accomplish anything. Listen, your prayers are the most effective ministry you possibly have. To awaken people spiritually, to bring situations, to cause people to consider what is going on and to kind of reevaluate their lives. And and your prayers have incredible potential. That's what James 5 says, that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And that's why James says as well, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. In other words, lest we super spiritualize Elijah and think, well, I mean, I mean, he's just like one of those spiritual superheroes. James, James won't let us believe that. He says, that's not true. Elijah's a man with a nature just like ours. He put on his sandals like everybody else. But what he did do was he knew the word of God and he believed the word of God and he prayed earnestly that God's will and God's word would come to pass with confidence and God honored that. And and that we ought to do the same in our lives and in our situations. So no doubt, Elijah, having been praying and considering God's word, comes now with a word from the Lord, he has a sense of confidence. God has assured him this is what God's going to do in answer to his prayer. And he comes now with this announcement here, giving this prophetic word to the king. And it's at that point, after this announcement is made, it says, verse 2, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here. And maybe that was because everybody's swords came out. I don't know. (laughs) Get away from here. That, That was a powerful word you just gave to the king. Turn eastward, which is back in the direction he lived on the other side of the Jordan, and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you from there. So right after this powerful prophetic word to the king of Israel, and you want to talk about a good start to a public ministry. 
I mean, this guy comes out of obscurity. Nobody's heard of Elijah the Tish who? The Tishbite? What's a Tishbite? And all of a sudden, here comes Elijah. He walks right into the palace of the highest-ranking official. He proclaims a powerful prophecy with a word from the Lord. And the Lord says to, to Elijah, Elijah, great job, good first day of ministry. Uh, that'll be all. Now, now, Elijah, now you need to go hide because if not, they're probably going to kill you. And he, and he launches into public ministry. And after his first prophecy and his first sermon, the next thing he hears from the Lord is, okay, Elijah, uh, now it's time to go, go back into private. Public ministry is over for a while. And no doubt Elijah hears this kind of strange thing, turn and leave, go eastward, go, go back over to the brook Cherith, hide in this ravine area where, and Lord, you're going to put me in hiding now? You're going to go put me back in private? And he's probably no doubt thinking like, I mean, did I... I mean, was that, was my sermon off, or I mean, was it a little too you know intense? I mean, what did I do wrong, Lord? Why are you putting me now into a private place and making me hide after having just brought me into a public ministry platform? And he gets this unexpected, unusual instruction, and God sends him away. Now he get he hears again another word from the Lord: Get away from here, turn, go eastward, go hide yourself. The brook Cherith is, again, over on the eastern side of the Jordan. It's a little brook that comes off of the Jordan River, kind of like a ravine area it's referring to. And then God says to him, verse 4, and don't worry while you're there in obscurity in this little ravine wilderness area by the brook, he says, it will be, he says, you shall drink from the brook. So that would be his water supply. And then God says, and I have commanded ravens to feed you there. In other words, God's saying, I'll provide for you, I'll sustain you, but he says, the way that I'll do that is if you're in the place where I want you to be. If you're at the location, I ask for you to go. So God sends him away from public service and ministry into a place of total obscurity. And again, we might look and say, why does God do that? Why would God put him into public service and then pull him right back out of it and send him into a place of obscurity and kind of like a wilderness season where he will now kind of function in obscurity really for the next few years until chapter 18 where he steps back into the public arena again to have that great contention with the prophets of Baal and so forth where he gets his next public ministry opportunity. Why would God send his servant into a place of obscurity? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, because God wants to develop his character a little bit more. And though God's used him, there are ways that God still wants to further develop and shape his character. In fact, it's interesting. I don't think no coincidence. He tells him to go, verse 3, to the brook Cherith. The word Cherith in the Hebrew literally means cutting away or cutting place. And no doubt that's exactly what God's going to do Why he sits there by this brook for this season of time and is in total obscurity by himself. God is going to use those moments and that time and season to really sort of just cut away and cut out of his life some things in his character that would be an obstruction to God using him to a fuller degree. And like all of us, there are things in all of our lives, fleshly things, areas of our life where God says, you know what, yeah, I, I, I'm at work in your life, but there are a few things I need to cut out of your life. And there's a little bit of surgery I still need to do. And I need to cut some stuff out of you that would just be a hindrance and obstruction from me working in your life to the fullest degree and the fullest potential. So sometimes God will put us into a place that's kind of like a cutting place. And he kind of puts us on the quote-unquote cutting board for a little while. And he removes us, and sometimes he puts us somewhere in a spot where he can really just work on us and shape our character and develop us more, sometimes through difficult and hard circumstances or times maybe where we feel like we're in a, a place of total obscurity. And God wants to teach him as well. We're going to see greater dependence upon the Lord. So part of the reason he's going to go there is because God wants to teach Elijah how to live more dependently upon the Lord. I mean, do you see what the Lord's going to do? He says, Elijah, you're going to drink from the brook there. And he says, I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. Commanded the ravens. To feed him there. So, so God's going to further his ability in that place to learn how to fully depend upon the Lord, to let God supply and provide in his life, and how he can learn how to hear the voice of the Lord. And the Lord's basically in Cherith going to teach him there by the brook Cherith how to learn how to live by faith. 
and how to live dependently upon the Lord and trust God's leading and God's word. And God's going to demonstrate his ability to provide and sustain him and how the Lord can work in even very unorthodox ways, in unconventional ways. I mean, you have to take into consideration what God's saying that I'm, I've commanded ravens, hold on a minute, blink, blink, to a Jew, that's an unclean bird, according to Old Testament law. And he says, but I've commanded ravens, and they're going to be the delivery service, and they're going to bring you your food there, and that's how you're going to get your meals. They're going to come and drop off the food that you need. He says, that's where I will provide for you. Notice, if you go there, if he's in the right place, God would provide for him there. And look what happens, verse 5. So he went... He obeyed, he stepped out in faith, must have been a strange command, but he went, did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and stayed at the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and then bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So there he is, day after day, day after day, we believe chronologically it seems like about up to a year Elijah spends at the brook Cherith all by himself. The only fellowship he has is, you know, uh, probably with Ralph the Raven who comes probably every day and brings his little piece of meat or his bread. Again, you know, because he's dropping off Subway sandwiches. I don't know. It says bread and meat, but two times a day, here comes the morning. And, and sure enough, as he gets there, here comes bread and meat and delivered by the raven. And then again in the evening, and this becomes a continual pattern. He drinks from the book, the brook, and the ravens bring him every day his food and drop it off to him. And you want to talk about a humbling experience? He's got unclean animals, ravens literally coming and dropping off his meal miraculously every day. And every day he gets up, every morning, every evening, continuously, just like God brought manna from heaven miraculously every day. Now, every day God is miraculously using birds to bring bread and meat to his servant there out in the middle of the wilderness by this brook at this time. And again, what an incredibly unusual experience. You know, he finds himself in this place now receiving the provision from the Lord and the Lord working in this way. And what's he doing? He's doing nothing other than having time alone there with God. And no doubt through that process, you know, God's probably ministering things to him. And every day, again, the meal comes consistently and he's just seeing the hand of the Lord. And he's just seeing God provide miraculously. And, and what an interesting thing to see how, again, the word of God holding before us this and in this chapter as a whole, the unique and marvelous ways that God can provide. So listen, sometimes God's way of provision, I'm going to make it simple, get a job. Sometimes that's God's way of provision. And then sometimes God's way of provision is he may work in a unique way. I've seen the Lord. You've seen the Lord in the most unique, crazy ways, like a raven from heaven, at times bring provision into our lives. And God will use some unconventional, unorthodox way to just provide in unique, different ways at times. But how wonderful to realize, you know, what one man said, and I think it's great, tr great truth, the Lord provided the, the food and he just used the ravens for transportation. And I think there's great truth to that because it was the Lord who commanded their little bird brains. I have a servant at the brook Cherith, go steal some bread off of the baker's cart, then go over there and yank a piece of salami from the butcher and fly it out there. And every day, I mean, and God's speaking to a little bird, the God of all creation who controls everything. And they're coming. And again, God's the one providing. He's just using the ravens for the delivery service. And how wonderful to always realize it's God who's our provider. And God uses whatever delivery service he wants. God can move on the heart or the mind of a person and yet use that person as a delivery service. God can give favor and opportunities and doorways. But God's the provider. And he just uses whatever delivery service he wants. And how wonderful for Elijah to have this lesson being taught to him. Now, verse 7 says it happened after a while. We believe it's been about a year, can't be certain, but notice what happens, verse 7. After a while, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So after sending him there for a season, notice what happens. God allows things to start drying up. And day after day, all of a sudden, Elijah starts realizing, boy, the flow of that brook looks like it's slowing down a little bit. 
And every day he starts to realize, that, that thing looks like it's starting to dry up. And now it's drying up a little more, and it's drying up a little more. And every day he's thinking, Lord, you, you sent me out of here. You've been sending the ravens every day, and I've been drinking from this brook. And, and Lord, you know I need water. And he's watching it dry up and watching it dry up. And he's thinking, but I know you sent me here, Lord, but it's pretty obvious this brook's drying up. And again, keep in mind, God is a God of miracles. God could have prevented the brook from drying up, would you agree? If God can make ravens bring bread and meat every single day, God could keep a brook from drying up if he wanted to. But God was letting the brook dry up. God was causing the brook to dry up because God's sovereignty rules over all things. And so God was allowing that to happen, to dry up, because God had a reason in the process for that particular brook drying up where Elijah was at that time. God sent him there. God told him to go there. But now God's the one drying up the brook. And again, notice what happens. Verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him saying, arise, go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. And see, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. So, so this process starts to happen where the brook starts to dry up, but Elijah doesn't move until he hears the next word from the Lord because God directs us one step at a time. That's how it goes. He didn't give Elijah the whole three-year plan. He didn't say, Elijah, let me tell you the three-year plan. First you go and you say a prophecy. Then you're going to want to cut your head off. And I got to cut some more things out of your life anyway. So then I'm going to send you to a brook for a little while. And bread, he's going to say, it's ravens are going to drop food to you every day. And then after that, then the brook's going to dry up. Then I'm going to send you to the widow Zarephath. And then this and that. He didn't give him a three-year plan. He's given him one step at a time. So God allows the brook to start drying up in his life. But guess what's happened? As things are drying up, it's getting his attention. And sometimes that's, isn't that kind of at times the way God on occasion will work in our lives? Sometimes that's what the Lord will do to start getting us a little more paying attention as he starts to let things dry up. And maybe some job situation or maybe financially or maybe something that we're engaged or involved in. And at one time, but then God starts letting it dry up and dry up and dry up and dry up. And, and we're, and we're oh, Lord, this is drying up. This seems like it's drying up. And the Lord says, right, I'm allowing it to dry up because I'm about to tell you something else. And, and, and as it's drying up, then his ear becomes tuned and then he hears the next word from the Lord. He doesn't move until, but a lot of times God will let things start to dry up when he wants to give us a next step or a new instruction for, for a new season. So he says, okay, I sent you there, but now the word of the Lord comes to him. Then as it's drying up, the word of the Lord comes and says, now he says, Elijah, I want you to go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Now, he now sends him a hundred miles north to a widow outside the land of Israel into Gentile territory, what we call modern day Lebanon in the north. And keep in mind where he's sending him to Sidon, that's Jezebel's hometown. So he's sending him a hundred miles away from where he is to a Gentile territory in the north to go dwell there. And he says, now he says, we're done with the raven thing. Now I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. Now, again, let me just say, this is another very unusual, seemingly illogical instruction from the Lord, causing him again to have to learn how to live by faith, travel 100 miles to a foreign land in the north, and a poor, needy, vulnerable widow is how I'm going to provide for you. First, it's through birds dropping off your food for a year. And he says, now I'm sending you to, to what would typically be, understand culturally in that day, these were the neediest, most vulnerable people in the culture. Widows were. Typically, you helped out widows. And, and he's telling Elijah, I'm sending you there and I'm going to use a widow, a needy, poor, vulnerable widow to actually be the way that I'm going to provide for you. And so he gets, again, this very unusual command Talk about a humbling process to allow a widow to provide for him. That had to be contradicting his reason and requiring faith in God's ways. God, is that really you? You want me to go a hundred miles? God, aren't there widows 10 miles away? I mean, why send me a hundred miles? Why would you send me a hundred miles away from where I am now and make me, and God, why would you send me to Gentile territory? Why not send me to a Jewish widow? And why send me to Jezebel's hometown? My name might be known there, and that might be kind of risky, but what's he doing? Elijah learned to live by faith. Just follow my commands. 
I know what I'm doing. We may not always understand what God's doing, but we're just supposed to be obedient to what God's doing. We may not always have the answers, but God has purposes. God's orchestrating his plans. So again, what does the Bible say in Isaiah 55? God says, my ways are not your ways, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. And God says, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And so often, isn't that what we're learning? We find ourselves learning this reality where as we're just following the Lord one step at a time, one step at a time, we get a next command, a new instruction, and we just follow the next step. And sometimes we don't even understand, Lord, why did this come to an end? And now why go do this? And Lord, why are you asking me to do that next? And, and we don't always understand the ways of the Lord. But listen, we don't have to understand the ways of the Lord. We just need to be obedient and to walk by faith and to learn how to depend upon him and let him lead our lives. So he gets his next instruction where to go. Verse 10, again, as a servant, he obediently obeys in faith. Verse 10, so he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. So it seems perhaps the first person he meets, here's this widow, she's gathering up some sticks. And so he kind of knocks on the door. Okay, maybe this is what the Lord was talking about. So he said to her, please uh, bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he said, well, God did say he was going to provide for me. So let me see if this is where the favor of the Lord is. Anybody would get a drink of water in a hot, arid climate, but he figures, let me press the issue and kind of test the water, see if this is the Lord. As she was going to get the drink, he called to her and said, please also bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, verse 12, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. So as he asks this poor widow for some food, her response isn't, well, listen, I mean, I'm a widow and I'm kind of on a fixed income. And, and I, you know, I, I'd like to help, maybe one meal. But instead, I mean, you want to talk about completely impoverished? She basically answers in verse 12 and says, listen, I don't even have firewood. I'm out here picking up a few sticks. All I have left is a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour to try and make a few cakes. And basically, we're going to eat our last meal and then we're going to die. I mean, you're going to talk about depressing. I mean, at this point, if I'm Elijah, I'm thinking, I'm really sorry I asked. I mean, just you must not be the right widow. I mean, he's got to be thinking to himself, certainly, maybe there's just a really wealthy widow who had a rich husband that just died. This can't be, I mean, this can't be the Lord. This, this woman is down to the last scraps of her food to possibly have for her own self and for her son. She just basically said, look, I'm going to go and prepare a final few cakes and me and my son are going to eat it and we're going to die. I mean, talk about totally impoverished. She's probably feeling horrible. But notice the Lord must have, I have to believe, stirred his heart in faith. And something must have happened between him and his God where the Lord stirred his heart in faith and said, Elijah, trust me. Trust me. Because it says, verse 13, that Elijah said to her, nothing apologetic, he said to her, do not fear. Don't be afraid. She's fearful. She's about to die. No more food or anything left. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first. And bring it to me and afterward, then make some for yourself and your son. And then the promise connected to that, verse 14. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So take notice what happens. He challenges this woman basically to put God first. And to put God's work first. He's not just selfishly saying, feed me first and then you could take care of yourself. What he's doing is he's being prompted by the Lord and sensing part of the reason God sent him there was not for God to just keep working in his life, but because God loves this woman. And you know what? God may send somebody a hundred miles to a completely different location because you know what? God doesn't just care about crowds. God cares about individuals. Like Jesus, who, again, went a completely different way and everybody would have thought, why, why, what are you doing? Why are you going? Why would you go to that well? And because Jesus says, I need to go through Samaria because there was just one person that the Lord wanted to intersect and to help. 
And we see that seems to be the case here. The Lord wanted to reach this one woman. So God did all these things, you know, dried up one thing, sent him to a new place, sent him to this far location. And so much of this is because God wants to reach out to this woman. And that's what Elijah's sensing. So he says to her, look, make me a cake first as God's representative and then make it for yourself. And he says, if you're willing to do that, the promise of the Lord, verse 14, is this. That bin of flour will not be used up and that jar of oil is not going to run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. In other words, he's saying, if you put God first, God will preserve your resources. And God will work in such a way that if you honor him and put him first and his work first, if so, God will honor your sacrifice God will honor your giving. God will honor your faith and your obedience. And she would see the power in the work of the Lord because God would preserve what she had. And it wouldn't run out. Miraculously, God would sustain her. God would provide for her and take care of her. And if she was willing in faith and obedience to make the sacrifice to put God first in her life, God would bless it and God would honor it. And, and now, so now she has a promise from the Lord. What's she going to do with God's promise? What is she going to do? She has the promise of the Lord. She has a decision to make in faith now. Is she going to do what's logical or is she going to do what God is offering to her as a promise? Well, look what she does. Verse 15, so she went away and she did according to the word of Elijah and she and he and her household ate for many days. Verse 16, the bin of flour was not used up nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to Elijah. And again, that, that covers about, an hour, about a two-year period chronologically at this point. He's with the widow. So for two years, she trusts the word of God in faith. She responds believing. She puts God first. And as the result of that, it says for a, a period of time, that little bin of flour was never used up and the jar of oil never run dry. And can you just see her again? Again, play this out in your mind. This is really happening. This is a miraculous thing here. She's got this little tiny bit of flour left in the bottom of a jar and a little tiny bit of oil left. And she goes in to use the last little bit of the remnants of these ingredients. And as she does it, she scoops out that last scoop of flour and she pours out that last little bit of oil and she starts making the cake. And then probably like you, I was, she goes, how's there oil in there still? She looks in the jar of flour. How's there flour in there still? I, I just I just used the rest of it. And then the next day she does it again. And God provides. And the next day she does it again. And God supplies. And the next day she and, and God never lets the resource run out. And, and like Jesus multiplying the you know five loaves and, and fish and, and, and in the same way, God just multiplies and replicates and God preserves the resources and he never lets the resource run. Limited amount, did she ever have a big surplus? No, but she never lacked. And God kept blessing and supplying and providing and stretching and stretching and stretching and again, supplying and, and multiplying. And what a wonderful thing. Again, th this reminds me of the, the, the heart of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. He doesn't say you'll have to go strive for them. He says they'll be added into your life. The Lord will just supply them into your life. If the priority is upon the Lord, if the priority is upon the things of God, and even at times, listen, she, these were her resources. These were her resources. She had limited, meager resources. This woman would have every reason to say, I can't give to God. I have nothing. And God says, no, no. you have just enough. And even that little bit of flour and that little bit of oil, where do you think that came from? And why do you think you still at least have that? And God said, I can multiply that and multiply that and preserve that and preserve that and preserve that. And sometimes the Lord takes us through these processes where he sort of prompts us and tests our faith and says, are you going to believe me? Are you going to put me first? Are you going to trust me? Are you willing to have your priorities right and put me first to give me a chance to show you my power? And I tell you something. Sadly, sometimes we miss seeing the power of God. We miss seeing God move and the miraculous of God in our own personal lives, in our little situations, because we're just not willing at times to trust the Lord in faith 
and to, to just obey him in faith and to take him at his word and to, to believe that God will always work. And again, Elijah seeing the ravens provide in the wilderness. Now he's seeing God miraculously provide every day because he gave this. And every day he's, he's living this out together with her and he's learning, wow. Look how God provides. Look how God just you know, miraculously works. So they're experiencing a miracle literally day by day as the Lord's working in this way. Verse 17, notice things seem to be going great, but it says now it happened after these things, that is after this season of great blessing and God's miraculously sustaining the three of them, the widow, her son, and Elijah in a time of drought. After these things, the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him, i.e. he died, terminal illness, and died as a result. So she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? So notice, she is naturally angered and somewhat fearful. A tragedy has just struck in her life. And for a widow, it's not just that she's lost a son. That's a painful enough experience for any parent to lose their child. That's incredibly tragic and painful. But for a widow, their full reliance on survival for their future was their son. Being able to live and ultimately provide security and provision for them. And now not only has her husband died, but now her only son has just died. This is an utter tragedy for her. So she's grieved. She's fearful, and she even seems a bit angry about what's transpired. And notice, as she questions Elijah with all this, she thinks in her own mind that God's punishing her for her sin. Do you see what she's saying there in the text? She says to him, I don't understand what's going on. She says, have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? In other words, there was something of her own sense of sin and guilt in her life of maybe something she had done in her past, as we've all had things in our past that we have guilt and shame over, or maybe something even her own present sin, whatever it was. But the bottom line is her guilty conscience is making her reason wrong. Because she thinks, this is what she's saying there, she thinks that the death of her son and his illness and, and the result in death is God punishing her for sin in her life. And that's not what's going on at all, but that's what she's thinking. Because sin and, and guilt is causing her to feel that way. She thinks, this is God punishing me. Verse 19, so Elijah said, give me your son. And he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. And then he cried out to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge, killing her son? In other words, Lord, what are you doing? Lord, I don't understand this. Why would you spare them and save them and bring provision miraculously through my presence being here in the way you've worked in the last two years to, to now just let her son die? Lord, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand what you're doing. And he stretched himself out on the child three times. And he cried out to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. So uh, notice this whole event happens. And even though Elijah is a servant of the Lord, to some degree, he's in the same place where this woman is in his humanity. He says, Lord, I don't understand. Why would you let events unfold like this? Lord, why would you send me here? And Lord, why would you do everything you've done and, and accomplish all these things and show all your power? Lord, why would you do all that to then only just let it all fall apart afterwards? And you know what? Sometimes we find ourselves in that place like Elijah where we don't understand what God's doing. And we find ourselves in faith kind of having to say, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. But Lord, the only thing I know how to do right now is to pray. And so Elijah just in compassion becomes engaged and he just, it says, takes the boy upstairs and in compassion he spreads himself out. He almost sort of wanting to connect fully with the life of the child. And it says three times he prays, nothing happens. Prays again, nothing happens. And he just continues to pray and persevere in prayer and he's asking something incredibly bold. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, Lord, let this child's soul come back to him. In other words, God, resuscitate him. Bring him back from the dead. Now, let me just say, 
Elijah has no prior reference point to pray something like that. Up to this point in the word of God from Genesis to 1 Kings, we have no record of God ever raising somebody back from the dead. So it's not like Elijah can say, God, like Deuteronomy 11 said, you said that you'll send the rains when we disobey you. He doesn't have like a reference point to say, God, remember when you raised so-and-so from the dead with Jacob or Abraham? He has no reference point of God ever raising a person back from, from the dead. But something stirs in his heart in faith to pray this radically bold prayer to say, God, you have power. You've shown your miracles. And God, if you want to revive what's dead, you can. God, if you want to bring this child back to life, you can bring this child back to life if that's a part of your plan and purpose. And so he prays that God would revive the child. And it says there in verse 22, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the child revived. God brought back life to what was dead in the body of this child. The child comes back to life, a miracle. This is the first you know, really reference to someone being raised back from the dead. We find in the Bible a miracle of God giving life to the dead. He brings her back. See, your son lives. And notice the exclamation point. I think he was as shocked as she was, but <laughs> celebrating that. And the woman said to Elijah, now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. So she saw this event. At this point, her faith is solidified. Notice, her faith wasn't solidified by provision and God providing food and daily bread. What her faith was solidified by when she saw God bring what was dead back to life. When she saw that, she knew God is real. God is alive. And she says, you are definitely a representative of the Lord. Now I know that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. And no doubt, again, I think at this point, Elijah is realizing, Lord, wow, all this was for this day. All of it was for this day. And see, sometimes the Lord is working and doing things. And, and, and in the midst of it, we're just taking one step at a time. And we're thinking, Lord, why that? Why would you ask me to do that? Why would you ask me to go there? And the Lord, after you tell me to go there, why would you let that happen? And, and, and we, don't, we don't understand what God's doing. But here's the thing. He's doing something. He's always doing something. And God in his providence already sees what's seven dots down the line. And so he says, just that dot for now. And then from that dot to that dot. And when you're done, you ever do, remember like connect the dots? And you're thinking, what? But then when you start connecting the dots and then you go, whoa who would have thought all those dots by just connecting them would make that beautiful thing because god makes all things beautiful in his time and so often he's working to grow and stretch us develop our faith and our dependence upon him let's stand let's pray together